This is Choni's Circle. I'm Tamara Lubicki. I'm Rabbi Paula Rose. And on Choni's Circle, we are going to explore Jewish texts from the Torah through the Talmud and lots of traditional commentaries to grapple with climate change to help us process our emotions about climate change and about this particular moment um, and to help us try to make sense of the world that we find ourselves in. Today we're going to be looking at a verse from Vayikra, from Leviticus, but also mostly actually at a comment of the Rashbam on that verse. So the verse reads, In order that future generations may know that I made the Israelite people live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt, I, your God, Adonai. So just a little bit of context, right? So this comes right after the commandment to dwell in Sukkot, on Sukkot. And the reason that's given here seems to be a sort of historical one, right? This is probably the most commonly known explanation that many of us might have learned as children or as adults, that the reason that we dwell in Sukkot is because that is where our ancestors dwelled when they were wandering in the wilderness after leaving Egypt. In order for us to understand the comment of Rashbam, though, we need to know that there's actually a big debate about this in the Talmud, about what a sukkah is and what a sukkah represents and why we're dwelling in one. And so one opinion says that, that it means literally a sukkah, like this text, and the reason that we dwell in them is because the Israelites dwelt in literal sukkot when they were leaving Egypt. The other interpretation is that this is actually referring to the Ananei HaKavod, the clouds of God's glory that protected the Israelites during their journeying in the wilderness. And that when it says, right, there's still a mitzvah to dwell in actual Sukkot on the holiday of Sukkot, but that that is rooted not in the fact that the Israelites dwelled in Sukkot, but that they were protected by the Ananei HaKavod. So Rashbam is going to come down pretty hard against that second interpretation. He doesn't actually name it. He doesn't say it doesn't mean the Ananea Kavod, but he says that it should be interpreted in line with the plain meaning of the text, meaning sukkah mamash, it meaning an actual literal sukkah. And then he elucidates a little bit more what that would mean. So he notes that elsewhere when the Sukkot is discussed in Dvarim, that it says that you're going to construct these Sukkot for yourself when you gather in your grain and grape harvest, right? That that's the time of the year when that happens. And he says that the reason that that happens at the same time is that that is a time of year when your homes are full of all good things, right? Your, your houses are full of good things, right? grain and grape products and wine and oil, right? You have all of this new harvest that your homes are full of. And that's exactly when you need to remember that your ancestors, the Israelites, dwelled in Sukkot for 40 years without being settled and without an inheritance of land. And 
that through that remembering of that sort of nomadic experience, we will be moved to offer gratitude to the one that is God, who has enabled you to have land and houses that are full of good things. And then you won't come to say what we're elsewhere in Deuteronomy warned against saying, that the strength uh, and might of my own hands is what made this wealth for me. And so the reason that actually we celebrate Sukkot at the time of the harvest, according to Rashbam, is to be reminded of that time when our houses, where maybe we didn't even have real houses, right? And they weren't certainly full of good things. It's a way of reminding ourselves that we didn't actually do that ourselves. And so Sukkot is actually, for the Rashbam, like a technology to help us avoid the trap of thinking that all of our success is due to our own efforts. And so for Rashbam, like that's what Sukkot is all about. It's like about this humility and reenacting vulnerability to really guard ourselves against becoming arrogant or overly self-confident about the things that we have control over and the things that we have the power to do. And based on this podcast that I've done with you for over 20 episodes, I feel like that's your tagline. <laughs> that that verse that you quoted that I can't quite remember. Uh, that's true. That's true. It is it is a it is probably a Rabbi Rose top 10 favorite um, of verses in the Torah. But I think actually I mean, and this is maybe why we keep coming back to it, but um, not just because I like it and think it's powerful, but in particular, when we're talking about the natural world, I think it's really important. I think there is such a temptation in our world to think that we do have complete control over the natural world. And there are parts of that that are warranted, right? Like we collectively as a society have put a lot of effort into figuring out like how to maximize the yields that we can draw from the natural world. And there are some things that are beautiful about that, right? Like we can feed really large numbers of people because of all kinds of different technologies that have been developed. And like, we should be proud of that. Like, that's a beautiful thing. But I think that the caution offered here is really important that like, it's not all us. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, what I think is interesting is you're talking about the technology that we've developed to feed a lot of people. And what I noticed comparing Rashbam to the actual verse that he's commenting on is he's talking about the experience of living in the desert, whereas the verse says, when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So there's actually like no reference to where I made them live in booths, right? To the actual desert, there's just reference to the place that they left. And as we explored in an earlier podcast about this idea that, oh, in Egypt, they just draw water from the canal and they live like they're in a garden. But yes, there is something like striking happening here with the Egypt piece, right? That it doesn't say, it says Egypt, it doesn't say the wilderness. Right. And I think part of actually like what's happening here, we're not talking so much about the Anane Kavod, the clouds of glory. So we'll, I don't want to go too far into that without like bringing those texts and sort of going more, more in depth. But I think there is a real sort of protective language that's happening mm. in this verse of like, there's a causative, right? I, God, caused the Israelites to dwell in booths when I took them out of Egypt. And I think there is an element there that feels like really protective, right? There's something about like, I, God, created dwelling spaces for the Israelites when I was engaged in the act of redeeming them from slavery, which I think 
there is sort of like a piece of like a, a protective kind of thing emerging there from the text. And I think it's striking that Rashbam is like, no, really, <laughs> like, that's not actually what this is about. Right. <laughs> it's not about that God actually like always has your back and is protecting you, but actually is like a reminder of the traps that you yourself can fall into and the necessity of like feeling that humility and maintaining that gratitude towards God as opposed to sort of like taking that for granted. Right. Oh, that's so interesting because we went in completely opposite directions. You were like, Egypt symbolizes slavery, God saved us, then we were protected. And I was like, Egypt symbolizes a like civilization that yeah. had figured nature out and was controlling nature. And God took us to a place where it was more desolate and more uncertain. Oh, you're right. I love that. I love that too. I love that too. Right. All over and over in the wilderness, the Israelites like want to go back to Egypt where there's like steady, reliable food supply as opposed to the manna that they're eating. And I think Rashbam, in a way, is like putting yourself in a vulnerable position has a lot of value. Yeah. Being able to relate directly to your fear and to your uncertainty and like look it straight in the face and then go from there is extremely valuable and that's why we do it once a year. Yeah. To continue my metaphor of Egypt is this technological civilization that has it all figured out. Rashbam is like, you're leaving your house, which is full of grain and full of grapes and full of olive oil. And it just seems like you're at the height of what you have achieved. And you're like, okay, I'm leaving that situation for a week and I'm going out into this hut that might I might get rained on, it might be cold, it feels a little tottery. It's kind of like the same transition, going from a place of certainty and wealth and going then to a place of more physical uncertainty, but a greater engagement with God and with, one might say, the ultimate certainty, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's striking that like kind of in both cases, like that's supposed to be joyful. Mm. which I think is hard, right? There's something easy about the joy of like, I have what I need and there's lots of food and I don't have to worry about anything and everything seems fine. But I think this is actually pushing us into a deeper joy of like, yeah, we are really vulnerable and things are uncertain and a heavy wind could knock us over and rain is certainly going to get us wet. But that there's actually like a deeper joy to be tapped into there of like, we're here now in this moment and we have what we need in this moment and we're cultivating a connection with the divine and with the natural world around us. And like, there's something I think kind of raw about that, but also potentially very powerful about it. And that's true of the Exodus as well, right? Like the Israelites are leaving what they know, even though what they know has been terrible. <laughs> they are resistant to that sort of over and over because it's hard to leave something that feels certain and reliable, even if it's not great. But over and over, they're sort of like called into trying to be in a relationship of gratitude, even amidst the uncertainty, and trying to find rootedness in a relationship with the divine and in receiving the Torah and in the experience of miracles, right? Like the joy at the splitting of the sea, right? In some ways, that is like the moment of greatest uncertainty. It looks like that's the end of the story for the Jewish people. And then they make it through to the other side. And it's a moment of great joy, even as the thing that stretches out in front of them is the wilderness. I think there's like something 
beautiful about that, like, finding joy even in the midst of, like, really intentionally taking ourselves away from our security blankets. Right, for sure. And, I mean, that is something which is necessary in our transition to clean energy and different technologies that are more in line with keeping global warming from reaching the extremes that it can. And I think that's why the progress has been so slow compared to the necessity of what we need to be doing versus what we are doing is exactly what you said. People are very afraid of change and want to hang on to the status quo even when it's worse. Yeah, even when it's not good. And I think that like maybe then part of the challenge for us, you actually gave a beautiful Dvartora about this, like, I don't know, maybe years ago at this point. I think a big question is like, how do we bring joy to that? Like, how do we show that actually a different future even if it's scary because it means change and it means a departure from the perceived certainty that we have now, how can we also help people find joy in that? Right. And so what are the elements of joy we've talked about? It's like facing fear and yet finding the connection with God, you could say, or with the people around you. Like Mm -hmm. when I think of Sukkot, I think of people gathering for meals and like a lot of community happening. And so it's like the ability to at the one time stand in the truth of what's happening while at the same time, like feeling love and connection. Yeah. And I think also being able to tap into that even if we don't have everything that we need or want, that we have enough I think there is actually something striking, right, that Rashbaum is like, get out of your house where you have all of this good food and go somewhere else when, like, of course, one of the primary things that we do in the sukkah is eat good food, right? Like, there are a lot of festive meals that happen in the sukkah, but it's about a festive meal for now as opposed to, like, look, I have all the food that I could ever need for the whole winter. And so I think there's something important there, too, of, like, reminding people that it doesn't mean giving up everything that you have or everything that you need, but a way of like really saying, I have enough. I want to share one thing that I think is uh, on a little bit of a lighter note, but related to the joy piece. We listen to a lot of toddler music in my house, and there is an incredibly catchy children's song called Chipmunk at the Gas Pump. which is a story about a chipmunk who works at a gas pump. But the end of the song actually has him turning the gas pump into an electric charging station. The song is like absurd and ridiculous. But I think there's something like actually like really beautiful there about like creating a sort of like normalization and silliness and joy about like just incorporating that like, yeah, all of these changes are just like a normal part of like what is happening in our world that like we can also like sing about and make jokes about and sort of like relate to in a lighthearted way as opposed to like only like thinking seriously about like what are the consequences going to be for me personally for our society at large to give ourselves permission to like I don't want to say like not take it seriously we should take it seriously but to be lighthearted in the way that we think about these changes also. Rabbi Paula Rose, the Associate Rabbi of Congregation Beth Shalom in Seattle. 
This podcast is a project of Congregation Beth Shalom and Ahavat Ve'avodat Adama, our community's environmental group. Choni's Circle was recorded in Seattle, Washington at Full Track Productions. It was produced by Tamara Labicki and Dave Dintenfass. With original music by Ella Labicki Feldman. Thanks for listening and learning with us.